All right, putting that down, I ask that you uh, find your way to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, today we're going to wrap up that chapter. And uh, for those of you who don't remember or didn't know, uh, the, the goal is to finish up Philippians uh, through Advent. Uh, the focus on chapter 4 tends to be the idea of the nearness of Christ. And so we're going to do a, a series kind of on the um, practical applications of Emmanuel. So I'm cheating <laughs> in my Advent series <laughs> and to, to some degree. Uh, after that, uh, after I get back from New York, assuming that I don't freeze to death, um, we're going to do some very brief things on um, kind of grieving um, loss in Habakkuk, uh, and then we're going to go into the Gospel of Mark uh, and look at what it means to follow Jesus. So that's uh, where we're heading uh, on our Sunday mornings in the days to come. Now, Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your word like the Thessalonians did, not as if it were the word of man, but as the word of God itself. Help us to submit our minds, our affections, and will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as he has revealed to us in the gospel that we might turn from our idols to serve the living God through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, through faith in his incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension, we pray. Amen. I had an interesting thought a few moments ago. Don't know why. Well, I'll get to why I had this thought. Why is it that the Brits don't sing with an accent, but southern people do? I, I, <laughs> Charles is shocked. <laughs> and I say this because I spent uh, a lot of time listening to Tom Petty, that great American philosopher, um, his live anthology this week. And um, one of the songs kind of stuck with me. It's a song I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, and so part of the chorus really caught my attention as I was doing my sermon prep. Um, yes, your, sermon, your pastor sometimes does sermon prep to Tom Petty. Um, and I'm not going to do an accent, so don't worry, Charles. <laughs> one of these days... I'm going to get my life together. Stop screwing up. It's a love song, Missing You. But I've, 
but I think it really encapsulates a lot of how most of us probably feel on any given day as Christians. The, the thought that we're going to express, that we express to God is eventually God, just, if you're just patient enough with me, I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to stop messing around. Um, and so the question then sort of becomes within a gospel context, how, how does that take place? Um, does Paul speak to that? And I think that that's actually what he's speaking to uh, in this particular passage. And so the, the, the question sort of is, where does the Spirit give power? If we put this within the context of Philippians, where does the Spirit give power to change in my struggle with sin? And I think Paul lays out four things. So you get a bonus point today, but they're not as long, I think. So that's part of my struggle. <laughs> when will I stop preaching long sermons? Um, Paul initially, in the very beginning, just issues a command to them, which is probably better understood as, brothers, become imitators of me. Become imitators of me as one who is, who is pressing on in zeal, is, is the, the most immediate context from last week. Well, two weeks ago, because Ted was here last week, to remind you that the, the zeal that Paul not caught up in simply the present, but pressing on, moving ahead, fixing his eye upon that goal in response to the grace that he has received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants them to imitate him in that particular regard. In other words, Paul did not simply leave them sound doctrine, nice teaching, but Paul also provided them with an example of sound living the living out of the doctrine that he had preached. And we see that Paul is not unique in this. We see uh, in Hebrews 13, there is a reminder, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so there again, we see someone, remember your leaders who taught you who gave you sound doctrine, but also remember the way of life and what it produced. And so Paul wants them to be like him, even though Paul realizes he has not arrived, he is not perfect. But Paul is not content to simply say, imitate me. He also commands them, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example or the pattern or the type that has been laid out, which leads us to kind of hopefully ask that question, what pattern, what type, which brings us right back to Philippians chapter 2, the pattern of Jesus. The pattern of Jesus who did not grasp after equality with God. The pattern of Jesus who humbled himself, becoming nothing, becoming a slave. The pattern of Jesus who was obedient even to the point of death upon the cross, not for his own interest, but for our interest, for our salvation. And so Jesus, not just as Savior, but also in addition to that, Jesus as example. But we see that in addition to that, remember chapter 2, where does Paul go next? He points to Timothy 
and Epaphroditus, these two young men that he is going to send to them to remind them of the gospel, but also to be living patterns, examples to them. We see that not only here in the letter to the Philippians, but we see it as well in his letter to the Corinthians that Mike read just a few moments ago. The sound pattern, not just of teaching, but the sound pattern of living that was going to be communicated by Timothy, whom he sent. Timothy and Paphroditus lived like Jesus. They shared in his humility. They shared in his sacrifice for others, considering their interests in addition to their own. They shared in Jesus' obedience. They shared in his zeal. Not only in Corinth, but we see the same thing taking place in the letter to the Thessalonians. You see, learning theology is important. That sound doctrine is important. But we see here that it is not sufficient. It is also intended to be lived out, to be expressed in sound living. And we weren't just given a book, but God also gives us examples, people that help us to integrate our theology into daily lives. And so we see this reflected in scriptures like in Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Okay? Choose your examples wisely would be an example. Uh, an expression of that. We see as well in Third John, yet another apostle, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And so Scripture expresses that we learn not just by cognitive thinking, uh, not just by propositions, but we also learn in relationship by being with people who are more mature, more wise than we are, uh, that we gain from them. We see this at the very beginning of life because, well, a lot of children imitate their parents. For better or for worse, <laughs> they imitate their parents. They want to be like their parents in significant ways. And so you'll see daughters sometimes learning to cook alongside their mothers. You'll see uh, young boys and, or young girls as well learning how to play sports from often their father, but not always their father. This is sort of the idea. The, the more mature Christians spending time with the less mature Christians so that they can see how to integrate their faith into their life. But notice what this is saying. Paul's not saying, hey, mature people, go find an immature person. What Paul is saying is, pay attention to those who are more mature. Spot them. Identify them. Watch them. Learn from them. Spend time with them. So the idea more is identifying those who are more mature than you are, possibly only in particular areas, 
and pay attention to them. Spend time with them. I'm grateful for the ministry of older men in my life, uh, whether it's Bob Grasso or, or Jim Beatty when I was a young Christian way up in New Hampshire. And uh, I didn't learn enough about home improvement from those men. They tried really hard. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't soak that up. I mean, I installed toilets with them and bay windows and all kinds of things. And um, I'm in trouble if I ask me to do that. But I also learned about loving a wife. Because I didn't have an example of that as a Christian. I also studied Romans with Jim in his office early in the mornings before I, before I, before I went to Boston uh, for work. So these men invested their lives in me, but part of it was me just choosing to spend time with them. It's easier when you're single, I understand that. But sometimes you need to find someone who prays so you can learn how to pray. Someone who understands the Scriptures so you can learn how to understand the Scriptures. Spend time talking about where you're weak, seeking the help that you need uh, to get your life together so that you maybe stop screwing up less. Humility, that gospel humility we've been talking about, approaches other people for help instead of waiting for other people to realize that you're having a hard time. If I hadn't called Christie's appliances, I probably still would be fixing the oven that I couldn't fix. Um, all of the YouTube videos talked about removing screws. There were no screws to remove. And I couldn't get that clip out. I guess I would not still be there. I would have given up and bought a new oven. But uh, that, that was not really an option I wanted to take. But sometimes we have to humble ourselves and say, help me. I'm struggling with this. I want to do better. Be, God, be an example of God's grace to me. And so gospel discipleship utilizes the power of example to change. That's the first way that the Spirit works in us through the example of other people. In the midst of this, Paul is distressed. Paul is distressed specifically because so many reject the pattern of godliness and its source, and there's some question as to whether he's talking again about the Judaizers or if he's talking about the uh, unbelieving Gentiles that were around them in Philippi. I think it's most likely the Judaizers, these pseudo-Christians, because a lot of it sounds exactly like them. Paul has repeatedly spoken about them, and he reminds them, he says, even now, but, but note this, with tears. He's got to speak of their destruction, but Paul has no joy in their destruction, even though they are essentially his enemies. It reflects the attitude of God revealed in, through the, the prophet Ezekiel. Have I, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And so Paul wishes these people would turn from their self-destructive ways, that they might live. It grieves him that they continue 
in their sin moving towards destruction. What's their main problem? Instead of walking in the pattern, okay, of Christ, these people walk as enemies of the cross. Now, here's where I'm going to look at the flip side of that coin, okay? In condemning, essentially, they're walking as enemies of the cross. He is commending, on the other hand, living as lovers of the cross, friends of the cross, okay? What does it mean to live as an enemy of the cross is important first. And I look at it in three ways, and I, and I see that, that these people most likely rejected the cross as necessary for their salvation or sufficient for their salvation, maybe a better way of putting it, due to the reality of their sin. They thought that their rituals would be enough to gain them acceptance before God. They didn't see that the cross, the death of Jesus, the Messiah, was necessary for them to come into this relationship with God. And so in that way, they're an enemy of the cross. Another way in which they're an enemy of the cross of Christ is rejecting the idea that now, because of Christ's death on the cross, we are dead to sin, as Paul talks about in Romans 6, precisely because Christ died not just for sins, but also for sin, the condition, upon the cross. And the third way in which they live as enemies of the cross of Christ is I believe they reject the idea, the notion that we are to bear our cross daily in self-denial as we follow Jesus. That he bids us to pick up our own cross, the cross he gives us, and to follow him. And so if we look at the flip side of that, The power of change comes as we embrace the cross as necessary for our salvation, that the only way that we can become right with God is because of the work of Jesus Christ and dying for our sins. That really, that that screwing up that we do is that severe. That it's not just a small thing that, that God can kind of overlook, but it is one for which Jesus had to die as a criminal, to accept the idea, the the realization that because of Christ's death and because of our union with Jesus Christ by faith, now we are dead to sin, that we reckon ourselves that way, we consider ourselves that way, that it has we have no obligation to sin, but we are free to say no. Been there, done that, didn't like the t-shirt. Okay? We, who are lovers of the cross, embrace self-denial as the way of life, the ordinary way of life for the Christian. I'll just remind you of the, the, the vacation reading Hugh Binning on the, the Christian love and, and uh, Calvin's book on the, the Christian life, and both of them were marked by repeatedly reminding me very painfully about Self-denial as the pattern for Christian life, which we see right there in Philippians 2, speaking about Jesus. So those people walked as enemies of the cross. We are intended to walk as friends of the cross, as lovers of the cross. 
we see that our attitude or their attitude to the cross, both of them, will play out in profound ways. And so Paul kind of spills out when he speaks of them, these enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's interesting because in the Greek, all of the verbs are supplied, so it sort of has that idea of Paul is just like, boom, there it is. And destruction, their God, their belly, their shame, sorry, their glory, shame. He's describing people who are ruled by their appetites, who feel and must do. It's not just about food, but just the more general reality of their appetites that are controlling them. But they don't simply commit sin, but in fact they glory in their sin. They boast in their greed, like Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. They boast in their lies. They boast in their fornication or sexual immorality. All you have to do is look at the people who now boast about abortion. Proud to have had an abortion. Now they've they got the t-shirts, you can buy them from Planned, Planned Parenthood, that you are glad you had an abortion, and there's nothing that should bring tears to us sooner than such as that. They're glorying in something that should be shame. Because they chose someone else's life over theirs. very contra-gospel. But we recognize that their end, their purpose, their goal is going to be destruction. Jesus warns us about the reality of destruction. And he doesn't say that there's a small few that, are go- that this is going to experience this. But he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the, the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to self-destruction. There's no self-denial necessary for self, for destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, but those who find it are few. The other way we can recognize these people is Paul says their minds are set on earthly things. They're, they're kind of focused on earthly things for their joy and for their significance. Uh, They're not just living in this world, they're living for this world. Last night, we, uh, Eli and I went to a hockey game. Someone gave me the tickets as a birthday gift, uh, and I'm thankful for it. Um, And we're sitting there, and I, I didn't, I don't know when this conversation behind me started, but it, it, it carried on through at least the whole third period. You're at a hockey game and you're talking about some relationship problem. You know, that, not with the person that you're having the problem. <laughs> God calls us to be attentive to our lives. Okay? So that involves some earthly things. Uh, but we're to be sort of in the reality, in the moment of of the fact that our union with Christ is still going on. Our faith is intended to be involved in those earthly things. We're not at a game talking about something completely different, (laughs) non-connected. But our faith is meant to be integrated into our life and include everything. 
But what this seems to indicate to me, as Paul goes on this description of these people who walk as enemies of the Christ of the cross, whose minds are set on earthly things, that that we too can experience the downward pull and the downward drift of depravity when we forget the power of the cross. We easily become overcome by the love of money, or the love of pleasure, or the love of comfort. This is often revealed if we look at our checkbooks, our bank accounts, appointment calendars, or even your relationships. If we were to hire Magnum P.I. to come and check you out, what would he find? Don't worry, no church funds will be used to hire private detectives. (laughs) Have no fear. But it's important as we recognize, as Paul says to Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving... That craving of the love of money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so these are people who are kind of holding their money to themselves like Smog the dragon. They're not willing to be generous to others. They, they don't trust God will provide for them. And so they're, they're holding it all to themselves because, you know, one day they might need it. And God cannot be trusted in the future to care for them. They're not spending time with God alone or with His people. They're caught up in the things of this world, finding almost any excuse that they possibly can to not be with God in their devotions or with God in their daily uh, worship. So, what would Magnum P.I. find? Would he discover that you are marked by great generosity, that you're marked by zeal? Okay, yeah, maybe you can't get up early and, and read your scriptures, but maybe you listen to them on the way to work. There's lots of ways to do it, but is there a commitment to do it? A commitment to the means of grace or evangelism, or is there rather just going to be this profound self-preoccupation that can capture us and drag us down. And so we see that gospel discipleship grasps the power of the cross to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So that's the second way. First is the power of example to change. The second, the the power of the cross to change us. Uh, Paul, of course, was describing, I believe, hypocrites, false professors, pseudo-Christians who are citizens of earth and hell. But then he, he turns back in a more positive way, and he talks about us, and he says that our citizenship is in heaven. He's returning to the theme that he began back in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, which uh, Ted Powers reminded us of a little bit last week. Philippi, Roman colony. It was a place where old soldiers went to live out the rest of their lives. But the significance of that was that now they were Roman citizens. They had earned their Roman citizenship through their military service. Many of them had probably never been to Rome. 
They had probably never seen Caesar, but still they served this distant king, and they had received benefits because of their service. But now their Roman citizenship had altered how they viewed the world and how they viewed their actions. It it shaped everything. And the Roman view of life was dominate, be in control, be the one with the bigger sword and the bigger muscles. Take control. This is very different from the heavenly citizenship that Paul wants those same people to live out. Okay? So Paul would say you are American citizens, most of you. There might be a few who aren't, and that's okay. Okay? But the primary identity you're intended to live out is that heavenly citizenship, that's the one that is supposed to color your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your longings, all of that. Citizen heaven, uh, heavenly citizenship, rather, is a gift of Jesus who made us his own, as we looked at a few weeks ago, who grasped us for this who obeyed for us, who died for us, who rose again for us. And so instead of it being something we earn by our service, it's something that is given to us, and then we serve. It's completely different than Roman citizenship. But like Roman citizenship, it must shape how we view the world and how we live in it. But instead of domination, what we see is it ought to be humble sacrifice. A giving of ourselves for others. And so if Paul, if we were to, you know, get Paul in the chair, Paul, what do you mean by this? He would probably say something along the lines of, you need to meditate upon your identity. To meditate upon what it means to be a citizen of this heavenly place. And part of what I think he would say is that we are intended to study the story so that you can live by the story. And there's a recognition there that we're people who love stories. Stranger Things fever has captured half of my family. Okay? Uh, Suddenly the clash is playing. And it's not me. (laughs) They have a sudden appreciation for, for the music that Amy and I listened to. Amy in her rebellion listened to. Um, That's one of our jokes in the family, okay? But the music we listen to as teenagers now all of a sudden is being played in our house as though it's cool. (laughs) It is cool, (laughs) I say. But all right, but we love stories. It's the story that has shaped part of how my daughter is starting to think about music. It's, you know, a lot of people have been shaped by Harry Potter. A lot of people have been shaped by Star Wars. Some people have been shaped by Star Trek. And so they go to these conventions and they dress up like Spock. And and I can't do the hand thing. I would say you are more righteous than I, but it wouldn't be true. But you have uh, Spock hand righteousness, Um, Vulcan signals. But story, story 
shapes how we think of ourselves, story thinks of how we think of our world, and we need to remember that we are part of God's great story. That whole creation, fall, redemption, glory. We're part of that story in Christ. Well, even if you're not in Christ, you're, you're certainly part of the creation and fall. But we want not just creation and fall to shape us, we want redemption and glorification to shape us. And that means we have to be familiar with the story, not just the overarching thing of the story, the, 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 the flow of the story, but the details of the story so that we know all of what God has done for us and all that He's doing for us and all that He will do for us. We need to meditate upon the Scriptures, studying the story so that it continues to shape us. And so gospel discipleship depends upon the power of heavenly citizenship, or maybe I should say the reality of heavenly citizenship. The citizenship flows over into also determining our hope Because Paul goes further and he says, from this place, from this distant capital, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, part of what's interesting when you think of the the New Testament is that Savior, while present, that word Savior, while, while present, is not one of the dominant ways in which God is spoken of, in which Jesus is spoken of. And part of that, I think, might be tied to the fact that in 47 BC, in Ephesus, another place that has a letter from Paul, they initiated the title Savior for Caesar. They viewed Caesar as their political deliverer by the sword. And so here Paul, in the place where Roman citizenship matters so much, He reminds them that the true Savior is not Caesar. The true Savior is Jesus, the Messiah. This Jewish man they put on a cross. Paul is reminding them that though their city is far off, they do have hope in Jesus' return as Savior to finish the work that he began in his earthly ministry. Wait a minute, isn't everything done? No, not everything is done. We see this in Hebrews 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and to after that face judgment, so Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Okay, that's already been done but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save from sin. That eagerly waiting, the same thing that Paul says about to the Philippians here, we're, we're eagerly waiting for our Savior to return from our heavenly city. As Savior... His function was to vindicate. His function was to defend. And so he's going to vindicate us from the accusations of the enemy and enemies, as well as to defend us from the enemies. It's perhaps one of the world's worst movies. 
It is Waterworld with Kevin Costner. I only saw it because I was in a bus in Mexico, and that's what they were showing. But there's this one scene where the young girl has been captured by the evil people led by, um, uh, now his name just fell out of my head, doesn't matter. And they're on a boat, because, well, it's Waterworld. <laughs> so you're on a boat. And he's got hundreds of henchmen. And he begins to mock the little girl about the man she knows. And this little girl says, he will come for me. That's what I think. remember about that movie all the time. He will come for me. And it doesn't matter how many henchmen you got on this boat. It doesn't matter how many guns or grenades or anything you have in this boat. He's coming for me. And he's going to rescue me and he's going to deal with you. And in typical, horrible Hollywood fashion, he did. But it reminds me of a deeper, greater Savior who will come. And there's no one that can stop him. And he will come for his people. Though she is mocked, though she is harassed, though she is beaten, he will come for her and he will deliver her and vindicate her. And not only that, but we see that Paul says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. There's going to be a cataclysmic change that takes place when Jesus returns. This body of sin, this body of weakness, uh, you know, I, I helped somebody move yesterday and even before that my shoulder hurt, you know, cancer. Autoimmune diseases, cerebral palsy, all of these things that reveal the lowliness of our bodies, the weakness of our bodies, that will all be gone because we will be made perfect in righteousness. Finally, we'll stop screwing up. But it was not because we got our life together, but because Jesus got our life together. And that's profoundly different. We are going to be made perfect also in power. We see reflections of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven, Jesus himself. We're going to be just like Jesus, except we're not infinite. That will be the one difference. Okay, but we're, any other way, we'll be just like him. We'll share his character. We see this, I think, reflected in part in Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So we see this vision of a God who is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine because he has unbounded power. And Paul mentions that unbounded power because this transformation that's going to take place of our lowly body to made into a glorious body, it comes by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Everything will be made subject to Jesus. He's got the power. 
And he will, he will uh, express that power on our behalf in a good way when he transforms these lowly bodies of ours. If he can subdue Satan, if he can subdue every earthly kingdom, certainly he can transform your body. Certainly. So let's not give hope, uh, sorry, give up hope, rather, uh, when we feel the kind of the, the weight of, of sin. Let's not be like that crazy billboard I see when I go to Phoenix. I have power to gamble less often. I have, wait a minute, what is it? I have, yeah, I have, yeah, gamble less often power. That's like, I got sin less often power. Yay. I hope none of you are satisfied with sin less often power. My longing is that you have, I want to be sin free power. And I long for that day when my faith becomes sight. But know that that day will only be when Jesus returns. So gospel discipleship also remembers the power of Christ's return. It remembers that our discipleship right now is imperfect at best. But it's still discipleship. It still focuses on our heavenly citizenship. It still focuses on the power of the cross. It still focuses on example. And so while we still sin in many ways, continuing to fall short of the glory of God that we were designed to reflect, we still have a great Savior who works by His Holy Spirit but from the power of example, the power of the cross, the power of our citizenship, the power of His return to sustain and change us in the present for the future. Will you, will you embrace these means of grace that he has given to us? Or are you going to still try to do it all on your own? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you provide us. That you who did not spare your own son gives us all things for life and godliness in addition to him. But you give, him, you give those things to us with Jesus, not simply in addition to him. And so help us to trust you, to trust you as a good father who loves his children more deeply than we could ever imagine. Help us to trust the way that you lay out for us and to seek your help in walking that way. And thank you that you gave us a community to help one another in this process, to point one another to the reality of the cross of Christ and the power of the cross of Christ, to remind us of, of who we are now in Jesus. And when, when we lose sight, thank you for these great gifts. And, and may we walk in gospel discipleship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.